Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Atomy Brainwaves, our podcast on education for educators. Brainwaves is produced by our wonderful team here at Atomy. What is Atomy? It's an online teaching and learning platform for secondary education. We provide engaging, curriculum-specific video and text lessons for over 190 subjects, as well as matching quizzes and exam practice that can be used for both learning and formative assessment. We also provide powerful analytics that can help teachers diagnose how their students are progressing and zero in on who might need a little bit of extra help. Our goal is to help make life easier for our teachers, give them more time to work on the most important things, and ultimately help to generate better outcomes. If you want to find out more about Atomy, head over to our main site at getatomy.com and feel free to try it out for free. This week, I spoke with Brian Crosby, author, blogger, and STEM learning facilitator for Northwest Nevada. We discussed STEM learning, its importance and manifestations in the modern classroom, and the role that resources play in bringing STEM learning to life. If this sounds good to you, feel free to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. And while you're at it, why not leave us a quick five-star review? For now, listen to this episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Are you going to teach us anything? What, you want me to teach you something? You want to learn something? Alright. You got it! Hey everybody, welcome back to Atomy Brainwaves. I'm your host, Simon, and today we have a very special guest on, Brian Crosby, upper elementary teacher for over 30 years in the US, author, blogger, and STEM learning facilitator for Northwest Nevada. Welcome, Brian. Oh, thanks. Yeah, good to be here. And and you said Nevada correctly. A lot of uh, Americans mispronounce our state's name. So really, that's <laughs> yeah. that's surprising to me. What, what are the what are the alternative pronunciations? Nevada. Well, well, yeah, Nevada is, and I think that happens because it's really a Spanish name. It means snow covered mountains, and um, and so if you were pronouncing it in Spanish, you'd probably say Nevada. But um, I think the uh, early uh, settlers here that were miners and ranchers and whatever probably uh, changed the the pronunciation of the word. So well, there you go. We we haven't even got past the intro, and already you're <laughs> flexing your educational muscles. Uh, it bodes well, I think, for the rest of the the podcast. All right. Well, let's let's hope. Let's be hopeful. <laughs> Let's let's do it. Let's see how we let's see how we go. And to start us off, I'm going to ask you to give us a bit of a run through of your journey in education. Whenever we have a guest on, we like to kind of start by just getting a bit of background. You know, uh, where you started out in teaching, and kind of the different twists and turns along the way that led you to where you are now. Sure. So um, I really kind of started out in outdoor education. Um, I worked at a summer camp up in the redwood trees in uh, in California, um, where we didn't even have tents or anything. We just slept on the ground. We'd get about sixty kids from six or seven years old up to about fifteen, and put them into groups, usually kind of age um, somewhat specific, um, and then they'd spend a week there and. Um, and it was just awesome. And we did stuff that you couldn't get away with now because of insurance and whatever. We'd set up a rope pulley that went across a, a creek and was probably, 
you know, oh, 10 meters off the ground at, at some points and kids would just hang on to a big hook on there. And, and you know, it was insane because if a kid fell that, you know, 10 meters, they were not going to be in good shape <laughs> in a rocky creek bed. And just we took them cliff climbing and where the cliff was so steep, it actually went in at the bottom and and did hikes and just, you know, tons of stuff. And I just loved it. And so I was going to go to college um, at Southern Oregon University because they had a master's program in outdoor ed. They were one of the few. But very quickly after I got there, um, the tax situation in the United States kind of fell apart and states started cutting back in education or whatever. And, of course, the first things they they cut was outdoor ed. So then I had to quickly change my mind, and I just went into teaching instead. So that's how um, I think that's why I've always been interested in hands-on kind of science and getting kids active being active learners and, and whatever. So so I went to college, and then when I got out, um, again, <laughs> more cutbacks, and so it was hard to get a public school job, and so I got a job at a Catholic school in Medford, Oregon. And, um, you know, at that time, um, you know, elementary education, this was a fifth-grade class, was pretty, you know, you got different kinds of curriculum straight from publishers, you know, a reading program and a math program, and and you pretty much went by that and, um, and you know, went to the next chapter and read the stuff and talked about it some and answered the questions at the end of the chapter and maybe took a test depending on the subject and, <clears throat> and that kind of thing. <clears throat> but at least that school really stressed the arts. That was one of their <clears throat> things to get people to come to the school since they were having to pay for it and and we did go on field trips some and whatever but as the years went along and I moved back down to California and <clears throat> got a public school job there which doubled my salary <laughs> always um, good always good yeah um and uh and that was at a school that was a very high income school um um and so you know the parents were almost all college educated and and you know Boy, their kid, you know, a B was not, um, you know, something that was tolerated. Um, you know, I had so many meetings that would just, they'd leave and you'd just shake your head about, you know. Yeah. <laughs> if they're not getting straight A's, you know, in everything, you know, or if they even do get one bad grade, which would be a B or a C, or then it was the end of the world, you know. So, um, so I did that for a while, and then... Um, we moved to where um, I am now, up in Reno, Nevada. And um, the first job I got here was, um, actually, I got hired to teach math and art. But two days before school started, they cut the budget here. And so that job went away. And so I ended up being the PE teacher that year, which was interesting. <clears throat> and uh, But after one year, they brought me, they moved me into fifth grade. Then I switched over and um, because I had seen some things at some conferences and I talked him into letting me do what's called an image class, integrated multi-age group education. So I had fourth through sixth graders in my room, about a third of the class at each grade level. And then the way that works is at the end of the year, your sixth graders move on, your fourth and fifth graders move up and you get a new batch of fourth graders. So you get to know kids well, and it makes you buy into them more because you can't just, 
you know, be thinking, oh, well, thank God it's almost the end of the year and, you know, we're going to get rid of Greg because he's going to move on and I won't have to deal with him anymore. It makes you have to deal with kids and um, and and they and their parents with you. So it it, it actually works out. I really, I really enjoyed that a lot as the years went along. That became untenable because of um, the emphasis on testing and being grade level specific. And what I loved about image classes, or one of the things, was you um, you taught kids where they were. So you had you know some fourth graders that were beyond some of the sixth graders in math, and some of the sixth graders that were at third grade level in math. And so that didn't really matter. Um, um, you taught kids where they were. And the other thing we found out was. A lot of your playground discipline issues where they the different grade levels bully each other kind of went away because these guys are in my class. You know, it's it, it was really interesting because they always segregate themselves out on the playground by grade level, and all of a sudden that wasn't such a big deal. So um, that was an interesting sidelight of that. But uh, So I spent a lot of time in, in um, fourth through sixth grade image classes, went to a school where all the four or five – fourth and fifth and sixth grade classes were all image classes and we uh, really integrated a lot of hands-on and field trips and bringing in experts and really having the kids do more of that. Um, when we did projects, my kids either had to set up a field trip, um, which I'd pay for, or we could usually do it then relatively cheaply, um, or they had to contact an expert and bring them in. So they'd have to get on the phone and call up a professor at the university or whatever, which was always very nerve-wracking for them. And, and I'd get some interesting phone calls back from these you know specialists because they wondered if that was really a legitimate call or not. And I'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, that was, you know, I, I love doing that because it you're teaching kids to be learners. <clears throat> and what they need to do to learn is sometimes contact experts and, and look stuff up and ask lots of questions and and problem solve and whatever. So that's kind of how I first got into that in a big way. Um, did that every once and then we had to move out of the image classes because that became, again, untenable because of testing and a few other things. So I did more um, straight grades, but then moved over to where I'd roll a class I'd get them as fourth graders, and I'd keep them for three years, and so I'd have them in fourth and fifth and sixth. So, again, you really get to know these kids, and they, you, um, this was at a school that was very at risk. Um, high numbers of students that received free lunch and even free breakfast, and <clears throat> if their parents came back with them, they could get free dinner there, and high numbers of second language students, and so what I started to notice is the more you, you know, back then we used to actually teach all those subjects, science and social studies, besides <clears throat> and art, besides, uh, um, you know, just language arts and, and math. And what I noticed was how language intense that kind of work is when you're <clears throat> working on project-based things um, a lot. And because... All of a sudden, students need to be understood, and they need to find the, the language for it. And so instead of learning it because they're having only explicit um, experiences with, you know, out-of-the-book kind of learning and whatever, <clears throat> they acquire it, you know, on their own. And it's and it, I was just amazed by the strides they'd make. Um, 
One of the things we noticed at that time was if we got students that were born in the U.S. to parents that didn't speak English, they would actually move slower, becoming good at English um, over students that came to us, say, straight from Mexico or El Salvador or wherever, um, in, say, second or third grade, because those kids had experience um, in school and had a solid language, and they would make the connections to the Spanish words that were almost the same in English, and they'd notice that, whereas our kids wouldn't. And so that taught me to start really pointing that out. Guys, okay, so yeah, the word comprehension, notice comprendo, okay, they mean very similar things about understanding and and whatever, and that seemed to help quite a bit as well. So um, anyhow, kind of went with that, and then for the last... Um, the funny thing is, uh, my students were winning awards, um, you know, not, well, a few pretty highfalutin awards, but they'd get on TV locally a lot because of things we were doing. And and so we got a new principal, and she was totally into, you couldn't do enough testing and assessment, and you don't teach science or social studies except for using the books as um ways for kids to learn about the glossary and the table of contents and bold-faced words mean that it's in the glossary and all the pie charts and things in there because that might be on the test. But I literally, she would say, but I better not teach you teaching content in those areas. It's just uh, solidified language arts and um, and math. So um, um, I would sneak stuff in here and there but was basically stopped from doing that. And that was, you know, during the push for a lot of, you know, I don't know how it was in Ireland, but um, um, there it really became heavy duty. And so um, the what happened was I was stopped from integrating a lot of that, which is, you know, just took the life out of things. And uh, um, and so the the end all was, I got asked to be flown out to um, New York. As part of the New York Times had a one-day thing they called um, Schools of the Future. And okay. they had me come out to talk about that kind of, uh, of learning. And then NBC, which is one of the big networks here in the States, yeah, they asked me to stick around. And, um, and they had me interviewed by Brian Williams um, about being an innovative educator. So um, that was pretty awesome. And then I flew back. That was on a Sunday night. I flew back. I got into Reno about 11 o'clock at night. And by 8 o'clock in the morning the next day, I got called down to my principal's office. And she made it very clear that I would not be doing those kinds of things in my classroom and, you know, and and whatever. And so um, that led to um, a lot of stress on my part. But the, the real irony is the next year... I was specifically asked to leave the classroom and become um, the northwest part of our state's STEM learning facilitator to teach teachers how to do the exact things that I was being told I couldn't do anymore. So I spent the last uh, seven years um, um, doing that, traveling around to schools, you know, offering classes and, and materials for teachers to bring into their classrooms and whatever. So I didn't really know I was doing STEM all along because you just didn't hear about that much. But looking back now, a lot of the things we were doing were, were, were STEM 
kinds of uh, pieces. So that's kind of where I uh, came from and our background. Hey folks, hope you're enjoying the episode so far, and we've got plenty more to come after this quick break. Here at Atomy Brainwaves, we're all about education, and not just for students, for ourselves too. We would love to hear from you, whether that's feedback on one of our episodes or a question you'd like to see answered by one of our guests or by Sue. So if you've got a comment or a question, don't hesitate to email us at brainwaves at getatomy.com. Looking forward to hearing from you. In the meantime, let's get back to it. Amazing. Yeah, wow. It's, it's yeah. Quite, quite, quite the journey and so many different facets and so interesting to see how they lead into others. You know, for instance, how starting out an outdoor, how that informed how you ran a lot of your classrooms and, and, and so on. And would that we could focus on each and every section in, uh, in, in all the detail, <laughs> but we're going to be shining a light specifically on where you you left us off there which is this area of stem learning which is obviously as you say what you're working in now what you have been working in in you know a, a senior role for the past number of years and something that hopefully we're going to get to unpack through the rest of the of the podcast and just to get started on that and to get the ball rolling i was hoping that you could give us you could outline exactly what stem learning is you know a, a obviously first of all definition of it but then you know a little bit of the importance around stem learning uh why it's so important in the context of modern education and even beyond that the kind of the modern workplace etc so what is stem and why is it important so I actually looked up um, different definitions of it um, just uh, because I figured the basic uh, definition would be a good place to start. And um, right out of the dictionary, it says, STEM is an approach to learning and development that integrates the areas of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Through STEM, students develop key skills, including problem solving. And so that's a real basic definition of it. Um, one of the things I always tell people is that STEM is a culture, not a time of day or day of the week, um, which is easier to do in elementary because teachers more or less are teaching every subject, so it's much easier to integrate. Um, but uh, And I also used to shock people because here I was the STEM learning facilitator um, for 85,000-plus students and, and there were probably 12,000 teachers. And I used to tell people, we'll really know when we're there when we stop calling it STEM, and it's just what we do because it's just it's just a good way to learn. It's motivating, and it's you know it um, it's more inclusive because more kids will are interested in that. One of the things I noticed when we really cut back on social studies and science and art was you left a lot of kids in the dirt because if you're not good at math or language arts, um, but you've got really real skilled in other areas like art and then all of a sudden that doesn't happen at school um pe went away they cut back on recess i mean um you know it really kind of leaves a, a void and leaves kids out and when you do this kind of learning where it's integrated and um occasionally like i always believe in doing two or three fairly big projects a year um depending on how long they last and um um, when everything's integrated like that, um, and, and all of a sudden the, the silos of subjects 
um, go away for a while. And, you know, typically we try to do language arts first thing in the morning or math, one of those. When kids were fresh, we were told that was the best way to go and and whatever. And all of a sudden, you, you're, you know, doing this project and it's taken off first thing in the morning. You're basically gathering the kids together and saying, okay, here's where we left off yesterday. Um, here's some things I noticed you might want to consider. Da, 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 da. Okay, go, you know. And um, But as far as, you know, what STEM is, um, a lot of experts say you're doing STEM if you're doing two of um, the parts of the acronym. If you're doing something that's science and including math or you're, you know, doing technology and you're doing engineering, you don't have to be doing all four all the time for it to be considered a, a STEM, to be considered STEM learning or STEM project or, or whatever. So, um, and like I said, it's, I think that integration part is easier in elementary because so often, you know, you're teaching every subject. And so it's easier to, to blur those um, silos of, of, of time, depending on how your school does things. In the secondary grades, it's more difficult because teachers are teaching single subjects. And so then it's up to groups of teachers getting together. Um, um, and this happens sometimes, but it, it's hard to do. And um, saying, look, you're the English teacher and I'm the science teacher and let's bring in the math teacher and, and you know, maybe even social studies and let's plan a project that integrates all those areas. Um, it's still a little bit tougher kids students are working you know in my class all those things were happening more or less all at the same time as part of how kids would split up the work and 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 whatever and the different requirements of the of the project always had language arts pieces where they're having to read for info and how they're going to share that and writing it out not just copying it and having those verbal discussions and 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 whatever um but when you silo it somewhat in secondary, so now the science period is over and you're going to English and, um, you know, it kind of breaks up the flow and, you know, I don't think it makes it impossible, but uh, that's not how, you know, things work in the real world. They don't say, okay, now we're going to work on the English part of this project and, okay, now we're going to work on the math part and now we're going to, you know, mm. you know you, you, you've got that integrated at all times. So... Um, I like to do the things that leave it as real world as possible and to also as much as possible do authentic work that's actually, you know, you're going to produce something um, that's going to get posted somewhere as opposed to, um, you know, kind of fake products that uh, die as soon as they're graded and, and go away. So uh, um, I'm trying to think the other part of your... Uh, Oh yeah, and so yeah. then isn't that preparing kids more for the for the workforce? Because that's yes, more this is what, what I was going to ask about next. Yeah, just yeah. this idea of what it's a really interesting outline of, of of STEM within the classroom and and what it means within the context of education. But yeah, I guess just the follow on there, as you've picked up on, is what you know what 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 does that mean in the knock on uh, for the future of these students uh, beyond the classroom. So, you know, when you're doing STEM also, it tends to be more, well, it is, it's, it's hands-on. I mean, if somebody's teaching STEM and the kids are mostly reading it out of the book and writing reports, well, then they're not really doing STEM. But, um, 
Um, but when you do that, you've got to have students have the ability of working together. And you've got to take the time early in the school year, um, each school year, to build that rapport in your classroom. Um, you know, how to be collaborative and how to get along with each other. And so I actually had a principal um, at the last school where I taught that you know, I was there for, what, 16, 17 years. And she'd tell us every year at the beginning of the year, you know, you need to take two to four weeks, five weeks if you've got a tough class and you need to. And your main idea is to get those kids working together and and how to get along and how to, you know, cooperate and and whatever. And it's, you know, and so you would do that explicitly. We'd, we'd actually have kind of mini projects and get them to work and let them, and then when issues would arise, you know, kids are on each other's case and name calling or sitting there and not doing anything in their group and the other kids are getting on them and, and whatever, we'd actually role play what to do, you know, like... I'd say so if, you know, Tony over there is, is, is you know, throwing spitwads and really isn't, you know, cooperating and, and, and whatever, probably yelling at him and calling him names probably isn't going to get him on track. So what do you do instead? And so, like I said, we'd, we'd role play a lot at the beginning of the year, you know, have, and it was always fun. We'd usually have one of the kids that was known to, you know, never be in trouble and whatever, and they take the role of the student that was off task, which was always, you know, really funny and and um, and whatever. But then you'd give them the tools to how to talk to each other. And um, when we were working on stuff, I'd tell my kids that they couldn't call me over to ask me a question unless everybody in the group had the same question. So because otherwise, individual students that hadn't read a piece of, you know, the, the explanation of what they were supposed to be doing or hadn't heard something I'd said, you know, will sit there with their hand up for five minutes because you're busy doing something else in another group and off task um, because they have a question that could have been answered by somebody in their group in five seconds. So, um, you know, you'd look around the room and the group would be all four hands are up and you'd head over there and, they'd, and the, then the questions tend to be good um, and you could explain something. Sometimes that would even lead you as the teacher to uh, um, stop everybody and say, oh, you know, this just came up and what a good point. And so, hey, everybody, when you're doing this, think about that. You know, just all those kinds of things would happen. Um, um, and so, uh, again, that's, you know, how, how you're going to work later in life. I mean, you're not going to have a job very long if you're, uh, unless you're so skilled at something and, it's almost impossible to find anybody else with that skill. If you're not getting along with people and whatever, you're probably not going to last a long time at that job. So um, um, we'd spent quite a bit of time on that. And I'd always tell students at the beginning of the year that we'll know when we're there when um, we've been working all morning um, or a good hunk of the morning on a project or some other thing we were doing and I tell you that it's time to clean up because we need to go to lunch. And you're saying, well, it's only been like an hour, hasn't it? And they'd always laugh at me when I'd say that. And so sure enough, you know, at some certain time in the fall, something like that would come up and they'd all go, wow, that was, you know, awesome. Um, 
And the students start to see that those kids that have always been known as troublemakers, um, um, you know, all of a sudden cooperate more. They're happier because they're happier. They're not causing such a ruckus. And, 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 and all of a sudden people value each other more because, you know, they're all contributing. Yeah. They start helping each other out. Okay, here's what we need to do on this project. Let's split up that work. And then they get going and somebody's struggling. Well, it's almost always if somebody's struggling or off task, they don't really understand what they're supposed to be doing, um, you know, or they feel dumb about it or whatever. So one of the things you teach groups is is assign somebody in the group, take them off the task they're doing now, and have them work with that person and get them going. And sometimes that's just what they end up doing is whatever aspect of the project they work with them on that the rest of the day maybe, or they get them into it enough, now they get it, they don't feel dumb, you know, whatever, and then that other student can, you know, get back to what they were doing and things just sail along. I also had um, a way they'd assess um, themselves at the end of each kind of work period, I called it active learning, and and you got a lower grade if you were not um, checking in with the kids in your group about, you know, how are things going and, you know, whatever every once in a while. Um, which, again, I think in real life, that's what people that work cooperatively tend to do. You know, it's um, and yeah. so, yeah, that would take some weeks at the beginning of the year. And every once in a while, you'd have a bad day here or there and you'd spend some time that afternoon or the next day and kind of revisit that and have the discussions about, look how great it is when we're not causing those issues and, and whatever. And, 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 um, you know, so I don't want to make it sound like, you know, it was Nirvana and everything just runs so, so smoothly. Of course not. But, but it's, but it's a huge difference. Um, um, you know, I'd heard for years that if you do that kind of work up front at the beginning of the school year, you more than get that time back as the year goes along because Absolutely. you're on task so much more, which is really true. Um, you know, you come back from winter break, you know, and sometimes things are kind of fall apart. And, and so you have to spend some gotta, time. Got to do the maybe. rebuilding work. Yeah. Right. Um, so, uh, um, but uh, just the all those pieces of, you know, humanity and how you work with each other are just as important as the the subject level learning that kids are doing it's you know it's it's really an awesome piece but it takes time and if you you're not used to working on project-based stuff like that it can be really intimidating at first mostly because people will think oh no my kids will handle that fine and then they'll jump into it and when you're not used to it as the teacher especially teachers that don't do well with um, it being noisy in the room um, it just seems like it was a really bad thing and then they'll drop it and they won't try it again. And it's interesting how you go along and you, as the teacher, you get better and better at um, the sounds of learning. And by that I mean <clears throat> it's really noisy in the room and you can tell things are off track just by the way it's noisy in the room. And it's just as noisy in the room but you can tell things are just sailing along because I know it's just active talking and other things that are happening and interaction. You, you yeah. really learn to, to that feel of your classroom. Um, and then the other piece of that is as teacher, 
because things are humming along, it's real easy to then go, oh, I'll just sit back here at this back table and grade some papers or, you know, whatever. And no, you got to be up and you've got to be wandering around with maybe a piece of paper in your hand and you're noticing things like, oh, see, they they don't know about um, paragraphing or, you know, something that you're noticing or they don't yeah. know how to do this kind of math or... Which or, is you know, which is actually, I'm glad you kind of raised because that almost sort of ties directly into where we were. You've given us a little bit of a flavor of it there, but I was hoping you could sort of... We've talked about the theory, we've talked about the, the, the effects of STEM learning, but I was hoping we could go into a little detail on STEM learning in action. So yes. a few more maybe examples or, or, or sort of ideas of what the general strategies of STEM learning looks sure. like in the classroom. Sure. Obviously, this is going to vary uh, with regards to different age groups and exactly. class yes. size and all the rest, but right. some, I guess some, some either generalized strategies or even some specific examples you can pick from to sort of show sure. us what STEM learning in action looks like. So as I'd started to say, you want to wander around with a piece of paper and note those things because then you can say, okay, so you know, I'm going to stop everybody in a few minutes here and we're going to revisit you know, whatever it is that you noticed, uh, how to do a certain kind of math or, or you know, things you're noticing as they're writing things up and something they're not taking into account or they obviously don't know how to do or, or you want to remind them, remember guys, earlier in the school year you were good at this and now all of a sudden here's what I'm seeing and, you know, okay, so, and then boom, it's, Oftentimes it's five minutes, it's 10 minutes, it's 15 minutes, and you're putting the kids back to work because you got that covered in context right then. So it's kind of just-in-time learning pieces that, that pop up. Um, and, uh, and then sometimes the things you're noting are, okay, so that's going to be a bigger slog. I'm going to need a bigger piece of time to do that. Probably my fault that I didn't think about that before we started the project. <laughs> and now it's ruining its ugly head, so... Tomorrow we're going to spend some more time on that, and maybe even over a period of days, something that uh, needs to come up um, that, that you're noting. It's such an incredible assessment piece when you're doing that and the kids are assessing themselves at the end of the period. Um, and sometimes that, that gets away because just the way time works and you're looking up and, uh-oh, there's only four minutes left in the day and, and the mm-hmm. room's a mess and we got to clean up and so we don't have time to do their self-assessment. But but um, um, those are the kinds of little tricks that, that I did over the years to uh, – it keeps kids on track. They see where they are. It encourages them to help each other out. Um, it's it's just really more authentic kind of a piece. Um like I said earlier, it's teaching kids to be learners. How do you do that for yourself? And and what kind you know? And when you realize you don't you don't know something or you don't know how to do something, you know who do I approach? But and sometimes it's going to a different group and saying, you know, oh, you know, Susie, she's really good at you know, blah blah. Can you come over and show us how to whatever it is? Um, and I, you know, I. I think too often projects that you'll see are are more like recipes. My my friend Chris Lehman, who's uh, at Science Leadership Academy in Philadelphia, you know that's one of his quotes, and I'm going to mangle it, but it's something like, if if you're getting you know 30 of the same thing at the end, that was a recipe. It wasn't a project. Um, um, and so I think sometimes 
it's fine to do things like that when you're teaching kids how to work together and whatever, just because it's quicker and easier and you get done, so to speak, at a better time. But but uh, this kind of work is pretty time-consuming, and um, I tended to fault on the... Um, you know, a project I thought was going to take two or three weeks, we're still working on it six or seven weeks later. And a lot of teachers balk at that because they think, oh, I'm not going to get through the curriculum. Well, but you're you're taking deep dives and kids are getting better at all the communications and the language arts and, and they're going deeper in, in math. Um, yeah, you might not be covering every little piece of, of the math curriculum right then, but then typically when you roll off of a large project like that, that you're only doing two or three times a year, depending on the length, and then lots of smaller ones in between. Um, um, I would tend to then to go back to those silos. And, and what you find is some kids, right, they really like that consistency of time periods. And if it's this time, it's math. And if it's that time, it's and and whatever and so you just kind of move in and out and as you'd move into a project as the teacher developing that idea you'd often go okay so they're going to need to you know know how to do this and so all of a sudden math would change a bit and then as the project really starts um, it starts off with a bit of a whimper and mm-hmm. and especially if it's more of a science project you're probably getting it started in science and giving them any background information they might need although as little as possible because you want them to learn that as they're doing the work Um, and then all of a sudden okay now we're gonna bring in here's another part that you're gonna that's part of this project and maybe it's got more of an emphasis on writing or you know knowing where this came from in history and so then it's a social studies piece and and so and then little by little um, if you make it um, um, a project that's, uh, um, that has a lot of products of learning, then um, it just kind of takes over the room. <laughs> and then it's, um, you know, the other time consumer is how good do you get the product to be mm-hmm. by the end? Um, you know, over the years, I've heard a lot of people say that it's the process, not the product, that even if the products the kids come up with at the end, especially if it's uh, uh, something that's actually supposed to work with gears or something, um, um, even doesn't work very well, oh, well, the process and those conversations they had, whatever. well, I disagree to a point in that I think sometimes you've got to do a project, and that's where it becomes time-consuming. You've got to have kids go through that you know, engineering design process and, okay, here's what we're trying to do, um, uh, just a couple of years ago, we did a big project here with, we had um, classrooms all over our state working on, and the kids learned about how plastic in the water um, around the world is, uh, well, and everywhere else, but we focused on the water. And we showed them a video up front that showed, you know, guys snorkeling off of, um, you know, some beautiful island had coral reefs and the amount of plastic in the water was just insane and they'd find pieces stuck on sea turtles and just whatever and 
And then it went into a little bit of the statistics about just how much plastic's out there and how it breaks down and never goes away. It just gets in smaller and smaller pieces. Well, of course, you know, this was uh, fifth graders. The kids by that time want to, you know, get up and find somebody to beat up. I mean, this is so, and look at the turtle and, you know, and, yeah. and, and whatever. And so then their engineering challenge was to design a way to remove the plastics from the ocean. And um, if we'd had even more time, we would have made it even more open. But what we decided when we designed the project, and again, we weren't doing it just in our, our own classroom. We rather designed this for teachers. And I think, I think we had 20 to 25 teachers in classrooms all over our state, you know, hundreds of miles apart, working on it at the same time. And so uh, we gave them specific materials cotton balls and string and just, you know, all kinds of stuff. And then the kids were put in their groups and they had to design that. And then we, one of the things we provided them with, because um, this was paid for by a grant from the state, is we bought these plastic tubs that we'd fill with water and we'd have the kids cut up plastic we didn't just, we were going to cut up the plastic ourselves at first, and we thought, no, it'll be good for the kids to cut it up, because then they know really specifically where it came from. Um, and uh, and so it was uh, those, we I found in our warehouse some plastic, uh, those file sleeves that had been used, and they were kind of crunched up so that, okay, we'll recycle, recycle those, and we used glitter a little bit, and... Oh, just all kinds of different, you know, anything, all the, I, I was saving and, and, and then the teacher would have the students save, you know, plastic containers from home and bring it in. And so again, now you're involving the kids and the kids become more aware of how much plastic is at their house. And that was another part of the lesson was, was noticing that anyhow. And so uh, then they'd cut that up and put it in the water. And then as they got things built, they would actually move them through the water and, and then they'd measure how much plastic they, they got out of the water, and then they'd re-engineer. And, you know, they, they do things, and, again, you have to just keep your mouth shut and your hands in your pockets as you wander around the room because you'd see kids, you know, this is a thing that's going to go in the water, and they're using, you know, cellophane tape and, you know, and things made out of paper. Um, and you're just going, guys, that's, that's not going to... No, 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 they need to figure that and yeah, so sure exactly. enough, they're dragging around in the water and it's falling apart. And, the, and, and, you know, at first they're puzzled as to why would that happen, you know. And then somebody usually says, oh, maybe this isn't water. Maybe we need to use things that are more waterproof, you know. And, and mm. you know, that's where you want them to be. Um, so, Amazing, uh, yeah. and then, so then they, they did all that and there was lots of measuring weights of the plastic in the water and how much did they get out um, and then what percentages and just in, in all of that. And then um, they had to do some other, you know, and part of that up front before they even got to the building stage was was doing research on what the issue is and what's being done so far. And there was a big um, um, real life project going on out of San Francisco, which you may have seen. So this was like three years ago where they built this big boom thing that they dragged out into the water. And there were some news things going on about that. And. And so we told the teachers, you know, don't show them that because they'll just mimic it. And then, you know, it's and so fortunately, um, you know, you can't stop kids from finding out stuff. 
Fortunately, not too many of them noticed that, and so their designs were were really interesting. But in doing that, you know, that timing issue thing came up again because some teach, and it was messy, right? Oh, there'd be water on the floor, you know. Oh, oh my God, you know. And and so um, some of the teachers in the project, um, which was all about teaching them how to do STEM in their rooms, um, you know, they wouldn't go very far with that. You know, some of them would only do one day, well, in the water. And it's like, well, no, yes, it's kind of besides the point. I mean, the whole idea is to go through the engineering design process, and this didn't work, and, okay, now we might even need a couple of days to, you know, we might want to start over from scratch in our group. You know, ours is just really pathetic and isn't going to work, and now we, we see, you know, some chain, we're just going to start over, and, and other groups are going to say, "Oh, let's just change that, and we'll make that string instead of tape, and we'll, you know, and and whatever." And and that's where the power is. And so a lot of them, you know, just they don't want to take the time, or it's it's too messy, and you know, we've got to store these these um, um, tanks of water over on on the edge of the classroom, and it doesn't look good, and and just you know that kind of thing. So um, yeah, um, that was one big project. Yeah. Yes, a really fascinating example of what of what it looks like in action and and, and the benefits that can arise right. from uh, from taking STEM learning uh, as you have done there outside of the classroom and bring it to a really interesting context and ties a little bit into what I what I wanted to ask you next, um, which is this idea of the importance of resources to STEM learning and, and, and how valuable it is to get different kinds of resources to facilitate some of these strategies. I mean, in that specific example, in a very basic sense, you have the resources of the actual materials that the students are using. But, you know, in a broader sense, there are different sort of online resources and, sure. and other offline resources yeah. that, um, that facilitate STEM learning. So I just wanted to kind of talk a little bit, uh, I guess, almost to close out of our discussion around the importance of resources to STEM learning and also the importance of choosing the right resource in for the right project, for the right strategy uh, b- to make sure that it's going to be helpful before bringing it, bringing it into your classroom. Right. So, you know, there's, um, you know, basic stuff that you should have in your room that, you know, different kinds of tape, um, you know, start collecting things. But typically if you collected you know everything you know soda cans and and all that kind of stuff it's just going to overwhelm your classroom so you need to have kind of the the basics to to go on um like i said uh you know tapes and glues and and different things you might build stuff out of i mean you know regular art construction paper can go a long way you can make tubes out of it and even if that's for fairly easy in the um, in the early parts of the project for them to start getting ideas and then they figure out different materials to bring in. But um, I'd always try to put as much of it on the students as was feasibly possible, and then I'd fill in where I knew that was going to be hard for them to do. So, um, and, and that's even down to the different groups in your room. Um, they know what they're going to build and they're figuring out what might be good materials for that and you're having them bring that in from home, which can be an issue because, you know, Johnny forgot to bring in the soda cans he has or 
or whatever, and we really needed that to get to work today. And But then that also teaches them that you've got to be reliable and have a way to remind yourself. And, and oh, or even somebody in the group could contact Johnny at home and, and remind him to grab those cans or whatever it is. And then, so they'd have to be making lists of materials they'd need. I'd almost always up front in a project figure out things that they would probably use um, and which things they wouldn't be able to bring from home very easily. And um, and then other thing, and, and so then I'd go out and purchase those or oftentimes we had them at school in one way or another. Um, um, you know, especially electronics, things like old radios and stuff, those are the kinds of things I'd stick in a cupboard in my classroom because in things that tend to have gears in them and stuff, because kids can pull that stuff apart and they're pulling out screwdrivers and unscrewing stuff and 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 then finding ways to store the different materials to keep track of it. And sometimes another group comes over and says, oh, are you using that speaker? No, we don't need that. We used the, you know, we just needed the dials off the mm. off the but radio. And so they're yeah. they're sharing with each other and whatever. And of course you haven't gotten into the technology side yet, you know, the computer programming and and whatever, I guess one thing um, that we can look at this pandemic, um, it's forced schools to, um, and parents and, and everybody else, society in general, I guess, to, you know, have more computers available for kids. And, and yeah. so that goes right into the computer programming piece. And, um, you know, a lot of the projects we've done late, like last year we did probably the 12th, iteration of our high hopes project where we send up high altitude balloons up uh, you know 32,000 meters or so and and so you get these incredible pictures but students can also design all kinds of cool payloads to send up there um, last year um, a class in Carson City which is our state's capital um, designed a um, a rocket to be fired from 60,000 feet. And so there's a lot of computer programming that went into that, and and they tested it out in their school by setting it up on an altimeter um, that they made as sensitive as they could, and then they'd walk it upstairs because it was a two-story school, and as the elevation changed, it would trigger the the piece that that um, released the rocket and fired the engine and and whatever. It ended up not working, and they figured out later why. So this year and we were already starting to work on it, um, that um, high school class, um, it had new students in it now, but um, they wanted to design a, a rocket to fire straight down and break the speed of sound, which oh, is, wow. you know, over 700 miles an hour. I don't know what that is in kilometers, but uh, probably... Something you know, impressive. Yeah, and so unfortunately that didn't come off because of the pandemic, but uh, mm. um, again, it... it it goes so many ways into the math and into the gizmos that they design and, and whatever. So just having a lot of those materials, um, you know, I don't know how it is in, in Ireland, but, you know, a lot of our our classroom budgets where teachers were given a certain amount a year to spend on, on things has kind of gone away. But if you've got yeah. that money like that or depending on the school that you teach, sometimes you can get parents to... Um, you know, donate money to, to the cause or materials. Sometimes local groups you can contact and say, hey, look, we really need this. And, 
and especially if it involves something to do with their company or whatever, they're a, a company that does a lot of computer programming and you're saying you need the software and blah, da 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 that's when you're going to tend to get support like that. And um, um, and oftentimes they're, they're happy to do it. Um, I know our local university here was, and I don't know if they still have this policy, but they used to require their professors to spend... 20 hours a year, um, you know, helping out schools or other um, public groups. And so when my kids would get them on the phone, they were often like, oh, my God, I get to spend some of my time. I mean, they were happy to do it. And then they'd usually have a good good experience. I mean, I can't think of any time anybody had a bad experience. And so they were usually pretty pumped up after they'd come to our room or we'd Skype them in or, or whatever. So... Um, and to always be aware, you don't have to be an expert in software, but, you know, one of the coolest things that we ever did in our room was, um, and there's video out there that the kids produced in fourth grade on this, is I got a new kid one day, and they told me, um, you're getting a new kid, and even though you've got the most fourth graders, don't worry, because you're never going to see her. And I said, what? Well, she had leukemia, and because she was um, getting all these treatments, her immune system was shot, and so she couldn't come to school, but they had to place her in a teacher's classroom for her to get other um, benefits. And so um, I had just learned about Skype, and had only done voice over Skype. But long story short, we got somebody to, because she's very at-risk, you know, Uh, situation. And we, um, our counselor's husband happened to work for AT&T, and, um, and, you know, companies don't like to give away their own products. But um, our counselor got somebody at AT&T on the phone and explained this. And that person actually said this to her. They said, well, you know, AT&T never gives away free Internet or, or whatever. But I'm a cancer survivor, and this is going to happen. And so sure enough, yeah. they came and installed Internet, and, and, and the local hospital donated a brand-new computer to her to have it home. And we... Skyped her in. It was an incredible experience. Um, there's a video that my students, again, this was a project. Each group had their part of the video story to tell, and it's about five minutes long. It's called Inclusion. There's lots of videos called Inclusion, so, but it's on YouTube, and it's, it's been seen a lot. And before it was on YouTube, we had it on our own server, and I know it's been viewed a couple million times, and we used to get tons of feedback on it. But So the reason I knew we could do that, or at least take a shot at it, was because I was aware of things like Skype and other things. So, you know, you know, hard materials, you know, know about those things, but also resources, you know, internet pieces. Um, You know, I've written, co-wrote a book on, you know, connected classrooms, and we're working on a second one now. And and so knowing how to connect with teachers, you know, around the world. Lots of our projects, we've worked with teachers in New Zealand and China and um, probably Ireland, for that matter. And um, Australia doesn't work as well, and I don't think Ireland does because of the time zones. It's harder to line things up during the school day. New Zealand just barely works. It's the first hour of their school day, and it's the last hour of ours. And I can't remember if it's either when we are on daylight savings or we aren't. I don't remember which part of the year it is. But, you know, just little stuff like that leads to, and when you're working on these projects, 
there's lots of unintended learning that's very powerful. Like, you know, you're talking to kids in Australia and and it's, you know, around Christmas time and it's summer there. And my kids are like, what? And even though they had been taught that, until they had a firsthand experience with it, yes. it doesn't, you know, in different customs and, and you know, lots of other things about science that just, you know, don't come up. Or um, Lisa yeah. Parisi, who co-wrote the book with me, um, her kids had heard that, you know, toilets drain in the opposite direction in the northern and southern hemisphere, and that's been a myth that's gone along, around for a long time. So they actually spent 40 minutes with a class I don't know if it was New Zealand or Australia, and they were they were flushing toilets and they were doing stuff to see, if it, which seems like what a waste of time. They're flushing toilet. Come on, but it but was intriguing. It was yeah, really you know powerful, lots impressive of, learning. Happening. Oh man, yes. So yeah. um, I think that's another view. I think including measurement whenever you can. We don't do enough measuring. Um, mm-hmm. I even would sometimes just have the kids pull out their books and various things. And, and measure them, and but always bring measurement into any project as part of, um, we also go out, I, I did a, a math lesson where we'd go out on our field, and I'd hand out um, little foot-long um, rulers, and say, okay, I want you to measure from the school to that wall, which was probably 100 meters away, so you can imagine kids measuring one foot at a time, well, you know, about 20 minutes into that, their knees are hurting, and and they've had to start over because they lost count. And so then you take them back in the room and say, so gosh, maybe, you know, if using these rulers isn't the best way to, what would be a better way to measure that? And then all of a sudden, you know, they're talking about meter sticks and then, well, no, that's still too short. And then tape measures and okay, now we're, and so they came up with that issue and it only took, you know, half hour, 40 minutes. And then they measured that, and they were, you know, very intrigued by that. And, and moving away, yeah, f- yes. fantastic, and, and and really goes to show the way that different, you know, as many or different examples there have highlighted different resources to diff- interact, be that online or different sort exactly. of offline resources, be they even as rudimentary and simple as meter sticks exactly. and rulers can make such a huge exactly. difference. And it's uh, some wonderful examples and a really fascinating insight into stem learning i feel like you could give us examples all day but unfortunately that's going to be that's going to be all we have time for on this occasion who knows what if whether we can get a some more of those stories going on a, on a future episode but that's all we'll have time for on that front today to close us out uh we always like to have our guests give us their hot tip of the day which is can be just a fun piece of advice or a little anecdote from your teaching days might be a chance to squeeze in another little example here uh, under the guise of the hot tip, if you like. So to, to close us out, Brian, what's your hot tip for the day? Well, you know, I have a blog and it's called Learning is Messy. And the tagline to it is, you know, roll up your sleeves and, and get messy. And so I'd say, you know, and bring that joy back into classrooms, which unfortunately, you know, this past uh 10 to 20 years of, you know, over-reliance on testing and, and you know, hard-knock learning and, and, and whatever is, is kind of taking that out. And so really allowing things to get messy sometimes. Um, you know, I always had to make sure I made really good friends with the custodians at, at my school because, you know, every once in a while we'd butt up against the end of the school day and didn't really have enough time to pick up all the little pieces of paper and 
paint that had spilled on the floor and mm-hmm. and and whatever and and so um, and unfortunately I'd go to them and say oh look when we left today we were literally blowing pieces of paper with a fan across the room because the group was teaching us about blizzards and they wanted us to see how you know snow piles up and against the wall and you know, and then the bell rang and we didn't get out of there so don't clean my room and we'll do that tomorrow when we first get here. And then I came in the next day, and they cleaned the room. And I went to them and said, what the heck? I said, well, we can't. The head custodian would, you know, would kill us if we left the room like that. So I thought, okay. So where my lesson plans had said clean the room the first 20 minutes of the day, we made them cards instead and thanked them for cleaning the room. Ah, you know, little thing. things. And so they loved us. <laughs> so they put up... With a, lot a lot of, of credit in the bank off the back of that. Yes, yeah. that's right. And so we'd always try to do stuff like that. If we did some project, like we made biscuits like the settlers made as they drove the wagons across the the U.S. to settle in the West, you know, in the 1800s. And so we followed directions and made these biscuits and actually made our own butter by shaking it in jars and and stuff. And we'd always make sure the custodians got some. <laughs> Um, good move, good move for sure. But um, but really allowing things to uh, get as messy as you can. And I know some teachers will say, "Yeah, I'm already there," and others will, "Well, ooh, you know, I just I can't do that." Well, that's you know real life, and um, mm-hmm. and and so is the cleanup part and getting good at that. And you know, some kids learned how to use a vacuum cleaner because I found an old junk vacuum cleaner somewhere, and so. We had it for just those emergencies when we couldn't wait for the custodian, and and I'd learned that sometimes the, the custodian wouldn't lend you the vacuum, the school's vacuum cleaner, and and so just you know little things like that that um, um, again are things students need to learn, but they're not necessarily uh, an obvious part of the curriculum. Yeah. Um, and trust that even if a project delves into things that aren't part of the curriculum. There's such powerful pieces that pull all the pieces together and show kids how things work. I just think that's um, that's the biggest tip I could give is get out there, get messy, um, you know, take on some projects, make them fairly easy at, at first, and and build your skills as a facilitator in your classroom. And and like I said earlier, you know, learn those noise levels and what learning sounds like and so mm-hmm. when things are humming along you're not telling kids i mean sometimes you have to okay guys we're getting a little bit loud so let's just bring it down you know but you're doing mm-hmm. fine get back to work and, and you just but, have but, to have but sometimes yeah. it's okay to let things get messy uh, yes exactly an excellent an excellent uh, piece of advice uh, amidst uh, an episode full of excellent pieces of advice. Uh, so, Brian, thank you so much for, for coming on, for talking to us, for sharing your wisdom with us. It's been a pleasure. Oh, great. I was glad to be here, and I always love sharing this kind of stuff. So, thank you. Fantastic. Uh, to everybody listening to this, if you want to listen to any other episodes, you can listen to them on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If you want to find us on our main site, it's getatomy.com. Uh, for the time being, it's going to be goodbye from Brian. Yeah, goodbye. Thanks for having me, and and you know, feel free to contact me with any questions or ideas. Absolutely, you heard the man. Do not hesitate to contact him. And it's going to be goodbye from me. 
see you guys